Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. seven billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. April, I'm just curious off the top of your head, if you had to pick one favorite dress, yes, one favorite dress (laughs) in the history of all of fashion, what comes to mind? And it can be an extant dress or one you've seen in a magazine or a portrait or, or a film. Well, Cass, why are you so mean to me? I mean, that's, that's incredibly <laughs> hard. But I will say this, and I have shown you this dress on multiple occasions. I, If I had to pick just one, it's like this Lucille dress, I think from 1916. And it's very kind of like body conscious. It's draped on the bias. And it's an evening gown, so it has like a train in the back. Um, it's very slinky and sexy. But one arm is fitted, and the other one is like this draped cape arm. And it's just simply fabulous. We have the original sketch for that dress in our collection at FIT Special Collections. And then also that we have fashion photographs of it in Les Mode. So that would be my top pick. What about you? I know exactly what dress you're talking about. Um, It's very ahead of its time, as are many of Lucille's designs from the 1910s. And no fashion historian should ever be made to choose just one favorite of anything. So I'm going to skip that question. (laughs) (laughs) I see how it is. It's such a fun exercise in recognizing the power and significance of this very specific type of garment to what we do, both as historians, and lovers of fashion. Arguably, the field of fashion history is overwhelmed by people's continued fascination with the dress and its evolution over the centuries. And it is the significance of the dress, which is at the heart of Lydia Edwards's wildly successful 2017 book, How to Read a Dress, A Guide to Changing Fashion from the 16th to the 20th Century. And this book was so successful that just four short years later after its release, it's actually being published in a revised edition, which takes readers all the way into the 21st century. So listeners may remember that Lydia was already a guest on the show last season. She came on to discuss her book, How to Read a Suit. And we are so pleased to welcome her back to the show to now teach us how to read a dress. Lydia, it is a pleasure to welcome you back to Dressed. Lydia, welcome back. It's so great to have you back with us on Dressed. Thanks for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. We are, of course, here to talk about your recently released book, How to Read a Dress, A Guide to Changing Fashion from the 16th to the 21st Century. This is, of course, the new edition of your wildly successful 2017 book of the same name. And I am so pleased because you're actually going to be giving us all some lessons on how to read historic dresses today. But before you do, I want to hear about how you came up with this fantastic concept to dedicate a book to, quote unquote, reading one very specific garment. And what do you mean by reading? Well, it kind of all came out of wanting to produce a guide that would help people understand how and why fashions changed. Because there are kind of similar books that exist for painting and for architecture, but there's nothing really for fashion. And, you know, when you go around even the most beautifully arranged museum exhibit, there's often not space or time to really grasp, you know, why styles developed, how quickly 
where they came from, you know, what happened socially, politically, culturally to bring those shifts about. Because obviously a museum, however big it is, doesn't have the space to always display, you know, such minute changes. And so I wanted to produce something people could take with them to a museum or they could use while they were watching, you know, a period drama uh, or just anyone who's got any kind of interest in why we dress the way we do and how that how those shifts came about. Dress is really my main research interest. So I knew I wanted to start my publication career by looking at dresses. And reading, I think, really involves analysing a dress as an object from the top down. Kind of the way you'd look at a painting is similar as the way you'd analyse art um, and being able to recognise different elements. So different historical elements, uh, different design elements, different artistic elements. And I guess read is probably the best word to use for that kind of approach because you're sort of scanning and exploring an object whilst drawing on, you know, any previous knowledge and associations that you might have. Yeah. And and as you said, with especially with the period dramas, it's such an apt topic today. Probably it still was in 2017, but I know a lot of our listeners are reveling in shows like Outlander or Bridgerton, for instance. So it's such a fantastic resource for those sorts of watching experiences, but as you said, also museum going experiences. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So the time range for the first edition was from the 16th century to the 20th century, but this new edition actually extends into the 21st century. It ends with the year 2020. How did you come up with the original time frame for the first book? And why did you change it for the second edition? And also, what other changes editions might readers expect from this new edition? Well, I think with the first one, I was kind of thinking, you know, by 1970, the idea of women only having the dress as a kind of daily primary clothing choice had really shifted. So I kind of stuck to that as a, as a sort of guide. Not that I didn't think there was anything important in terms of dresses afterwards, but just as a place to end the book and to kind of, because it has to end somewhere in the beginning. But, you know, because that shift had happened by the 70s, it doesn't mean that, of course, since there haven't been any changes in, or in perception in the way that men and women approach gendered clothing. And since I look primarily at Western dress in the book, I also wanted to think about the ways that globalization since the 80s in particular has influenced um, what we'd see as Western dress and the ways that increased wardrobe options for women have changed the way they consume and, and wear dresses. So given the breadth of all the discussions we've seen, particularly in the last few years about gendered clothing since the book was published, I really wanted also to explore that area. So those are kind of the main key themes I've looked at. Um, I think the only area we did talk briefly about whether I should look at COVID and then I thought, well, I think it's mainly in some ways too early to think about how that's impacted the dress specifically. We know that it's had an impact on casual clothing and, and the way people present themselves in a more kind of leisurely way. But yeah, we thought maybe leave that and perhaps maybe in future editions that could come in somewhere. But basically, yeah, there are lots more images. Um, there's close-ups of particular dresses. There's full-page spreads at the end of each chapter because I know that given the way the pages have to be laid out, there's, there's a lot of information and sometimes some of the images in the first edition were small and I wanted people to get a chance to see them in more detail. There are also more examples of working-class dress. It's an area I'm really interested in and I feel is glossed over far too often because we have so few surviving examples. And I think, you know, it's it's funny because a lot of fashion historians start from art history, as I did. But many people, um, I think that I've spoken to, still seem sometimes a bit unsure about 
using images or particular types of images to, to read from. But I think it's a very transdisciplinary field and the ability to read from more than one source is really important. So I wanted to include more examples of portraits and engravings and, and those types of things to show how we can understand dress from those different perspectives. So I've also included um, several key dress types that either weren't considered or that initially it was felt there wasn't room for. So morning dress, debutante dress, riding habits, that type of thing. So there's a bit more breadth in there as well. Yeah. And I just want to say congratulations on this new edition because I love the first book and I absolutely love this new edition, especially the very last dress featured in the book, which is something we will talk about later on in this podcast, but it was such a welcome surprise. I think I, I like yelped out loud. I was so pleased. So um, we'll talk about that. <laughs> also one of my favorite dress fashion history moments in history. So it was so great to Me see too. you here. So a little <laughs> yeah. teaser dress listeners, you're just gonna have to wait um, until later in this interview. But so we're gonna start learning how to read dresses. But before we get into specifics, are there any basics or fundamental skills our listeners should know to start reading a dress to kind of begin this learning process? Well, I think, I mean, hopefully that's what the, the book will teach. So I'm hoping that people won't need to go into it with too much prior knowledge. But I would say that I really love the slow approach to seeing as promoted by Ingrid Mida with her dress detective book. That's an idea that's always very sensible when analysing items of dress. Don't rush in with too many preconceived notions about the age of the garment you know, the life of the wearer. Don't let the presentation of it sway you too much. As I said before, you know, it's a question of scanning it from top to bottom really slowly, noting down any immediate aspects that strike you as important or unusual. And crucially, I think noting anything that the dress reminds you of, whether that's something in another collection, a film costume, you know, or even a contemporary piece of clothing. And I think this helps to narrow down the date and purpose of the item. And then, of course, you know, the hope is that people will go away and do a bit of research and find out more, you know, in terms of what their own interests are. Absolutely. And then you can be that annoying partner when you're watching a TV show or a film and saying, that's not historically accurate, or that is historically accurate. So. I am that annoying partner. My husband's always like, oh God, are you going to actually shut up while we watch this? <laughs> My question, like, inevitably is always, where is her chemise? Where is it? Or yay, she's wearing a chemise. Um, but I digress. So <laughs> let's get to it, shall we? The dresses in this book are divided across 12 chapters. So beginning with chapter one, you cover the years 1550 to 1600, a period that our listeners will probably recognize as most famously being associated with the reign of Queen Elizabeth I of England. You do teach us how to read a dress worn by the queen in this section, but you also teach us how to read the dress of one of her contemporaries and Lady Pope with her children is the title of the painting that you analyzed dating to 1596. So what made this portrait so exceptional and what can we learn from it? Oh, I love this one on so many levels. And it's one that I was aware of. Um, I've been aware of for a long time. And it's one of those examples as well. I can't understand why I didn't include it in the first one. It just kind of got put to the side and then forgotten about, you know, as, as, as happens sometimes. Um, but I, I love it because it's really intriguing as a record and a celebration of Anne uh, and her marriage, but also of her fertility. And, you know, I think although pregnancy was still something that was not always openly talked about or openly shown, there was still in Europe at this time, yeah, a lot of interest in portraying pregnant women because childbirth was so risky and because it was such a kind of aim of any married woman to have lots of children. 
So, you know, it was almost, a, I guess, a source of pride to have a portrait of your family in which it showed your wife being pregnant because it showed, you know, your fertility of both partners and the continuation of the line. And I think it's also really poignant because, you know, as I said, the chance that she would die in childbirth was quite high. So it's kind of a last portrait as well, potentially. And what I really love about it is it shows her wearing a dress without the big wheel farthingale that would usually create that fashionable silhouette. So we have the skirt just kind of hanging down in these two sections, which you never see in pictures of that era. So it kind of shows us what the skirt looks like without its supports underneath. And obviously this is done because she's pregnant and she couldn't have worn that, but it's just a really interesting way um, of, of looking at the dress and allows us to kind of deconstruct that dress in a way that we we aren't usually able to. Yeah, so it hangs down in a manner that's completely unseen in other elite portraits. But other, respect, other respects, it's very um, fashionable in terms of the, the bodice um, showing a similar width to sort of men's doublets and worn with an open ruff. And although I'm not looking at children's portraits specifically or children's dresses in this book, I, I do also love the fact that we get a glimpse at gendered children's clothing too, at how at first glance it's very difficult to tell the boys and the girls apart. And then when we look at her little daughter, Jane, we can see that she's wearing pretty much a replica of her mum's dress and and that you know put, puts her out as points her out as the girl and the boys are still um, in dresses but there are little aspects that point them out as being more masculine but it's that kind of idea we have today of children being so gendered which I think is even stronger at the moment than it has been is something that is so you know so new really and I, I'd, I'd love to do more about that at some point. Yeah, and specifically dress listeners, she's talking about the fact that at first glance, it appears that the two boys are wearing dresses because they are. And you teach everyone about the breaching coming of age ceremony when they would actually be breached and get their pants. So Mm. yeah, it's a super interesting practice that we're not really familiar with today. Yeah, exactly. I love it. So we're going to fast forward a little bit because, of course, we can't cover everything. Dress listeners are just going to have to get their hands on this book. So we're moving to Chapter 3, which covers the years 1710 to 1790. You feature a wonderful extant garment from the collection of the Met, the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, and it's a 1730s robe volant. Please tell us about this dress. Well, this is another one of those dresses that I can't believe I didn't include in the first edition. And um, I was kind of kicking myself not long after it first came out. And like, why didn't I put this in? Because it illustrates that really important transitional style between, you know, the late 17th century Mantua and the 18th century sack dress or the robe à la Française, which we're so familiar with. And this gown originated in the court of Louis XIV, who favoured really elaborate and restrictive dresses for women of his court. And this was his their way of asserting a bit of um, their own preference, particularly, of course, after he died in 1715. And although it's really well documented, there's a lot of imagery showing the robe volant. There are only a few surviving examples. And I love this one from the Met. I love the way it's been mounted and displayed because it so beautifully shows that kind of unstructured silhouette and free-flowing pleats that would soon be, you know, so be stitched down and be much more um, constrained. But, you know, I, I think even though we look at it and see it as being much more of a a leisurely loose garment, it was still worn over stays and a stomacher, you know, showing how indispensable these items were. And what I love about it from an analytical sort of reading point of view is the way we can so clearly see how the Francaise was going to develop. Um, In the book, there's a 1720s to 30s example of an early sack dress next to it. 
Um, and this shows how those loose folds seen on the volant gradually became tapered to the body, showing off the shape of the torso. And the separate cuff on the sleeves became broader and more distinctly pleated to accommodate the, the curve of the elbow. So I think those billowing pleats of the volant are perhaps most representative of the sack dress. And we can see in this example how well they help it live up to its name of volant, you know, which means flying. And in just a few short years, they would become, as I said, so much narrower, stitched down about three inches below the neckline. And this allowed them to follow the curve of the back and be far more dictated by the developing fashionable silhouette, which we're so familiar with in the 18th century. So I think the dress shows a kind of early example of that leisured wear, but it also shows an absolutely classic silhouette in the making. And, and it's something we can, if you have, you know, a volant and then a, an early 18th century robe à la française and, and then an earlier mantua before, you can you can literally see those changes over at quite a relatively short period of time occurring. So I think it's one that I'm really happy I was I was able to include this time. Yeah, and you just outlined how it's displayed or how it's organized. The book's organized. You have a mantua in front of it, then you have the robe volant, and then a robe à la française. So it's clearly you're clearly showing uh, readers the evolution of that garment in a really digestible way. So one of my favorite things about the breadth of your book is that you incorporate dresses, as you mentioned earlier, worn by all classes of society. And this is despite the lack of extant working class garments in museum collections. We know, of course, that women, you know, working class women wore these garments until these garments couldn't be worn anymore. <laughs> so it's really rare that they survive. And an excellent example of, of the way you analyze working class garments is demonstrated by your reading of the clothing worn by the woman depicted in the 1814 illustration, The Cranberry Girl. So what does this illustration teach us about the clothing worn by working class women of this period? Yeah, well, this is again one that I, I hadn't seen this image before I started searching for Regency sort of working class dress. And there's not a great deal that's been written about it. Um, the, mostly, most of the stuff I could find was actually about a history of farming and a history of cranberry picking. But looking at the garment, I, I think what it really shows is that although highly fashionable, you know, high quality dresses were only worn by a tiny minority of people, that didn't mean that certain recognisable elements were completely denied to poorer women um, and that they wouldn't have striven to look as fashionable as they could, or at least as close to the, you know, the, the contemporary silhouette. So it hopefully highlights what most people would have worn in many respects, what she would have worn also for work. So that also demonstrates what most women would have worn because most women would have been doing some kind of employment. But it also raises come sort of unanswerable questions, which I think is part of the fun. So one of the things I point out is that she's got this ankle length skirt on which is obviously for practical reasons picking cranberries doing sort of hard physical work she wouldn't wear a floor length skirt but also at the time the image came out in around 1814 uh, we start to see ankle length skirts anyway in the the popular fashion so we wonder whether it's purely practical or whether there is an element as well of her adapting her dress in terms of what other people were wearing and what was what was fashionable I would imagine it's possibly a bit of both. You know, someone of her background might well have owned a best dress that she wore to church or that she wore for special occasions, and that might have shown some contemporary trends. And she would have had some idea of what was in fashion in terms of uh, what was in fashion plates. Um, if she lived in a village, there would probably be some kind of shop where she'd be able to get an idea of what was being worn. And there are also accessories uh, in the image that 
were worn by women of all classes. So we have, um, of course, straw bonnets, fichu, neckerchiefs, uh, fingerless mitts. And in terms of the basic structure, these were very, very similar to what elite women would have worn, but obviously very different materials, very different trimmings, which would really is what would show the wealth and status. So I think above all, it demonstrates that universality of the empire line and the efforts of all women to have it in their clothing, um, no matter how plainly that might be done. Yeah, and it really challenges this kind of trope that fashion was just reserved for the middle and upper classes, right? I mean, Mm. uh, it really speaks to the fact that fashion and clothing is so much so central to our identities, right? And to deny that women of all classes and all backgrounds would have not chosen to dress themselves in certain ways or not aspired to dress themselves in certain ways is denying, you know, their humanity in many senses, right? I mean, of course, these women had, of course, these women had aspirations to dress their bodies a certain way, you know, and you find evidence of it in in this kind of really unique reading, I would say, of this uh, illustration that probably hasn't been read in this way before. (laughs) I, I don't think so. And I hope that it might spur some people on to doing more of this, because I just think it's really important that we we don't view fashion in this very elite spectrum. And I, we're so familiar with doing that. You know, it's covered so naturally to us. Um, but there's so much more out there we can look at. Yeah. And, and doing it in these kind of new methodologies, too. I think it's a really, really important step that you've demonstrated that hopefully more people will sit up and pay attention to. So you, of course, feature ball gowns throughout the book. <laughs> you feature ball gowns, everything from ball gowns to sportswear, which really demonstrates this wide range of occasion-specific dresses women have worn throughout history. I mean, no more is this on view than in the 19th century when women of a certain class are changing so many times a day. But one example of occasion-specific dresses are riding habits, and you have this wonderful 1826 or circa 1826 example from the Reich Museum. So what do we learn from reading this dress? Well, this is a really lovely example of a garment worn both as a day dress and obviously for the express purpose of horse riding. So something very practical. And I I kind of, I was thinking about riding habits initially. And then, I don't know, it's that quest, ever evolving question of what a dress is, how we define a dress. And I think possibly because it's it's seen still by people as sportswear because it's seen as it's not a sort of single joined garment. I thought, well, I'd leave it until a later edition because it's a bit more complex. But what I like about it is that at first glance, it might appear to be a sort of normal floor length uh, police coat, which, you know, we're often styled on similar lines with military inspired detailing. But what, when we look a bit at it a bit closer, we can see as aspects like the lack of volume and stiffening in the skirt, which was fashionable in the 1820s, and its extra length kind of pooling around the feet show that it was made for an activity like riding. And when we look even closer, we can see there is no front opening to the skirt, which rules it out as a, as a coat. And along with most habits at this time, it was almost certainly um, two pieces, so a skirt and a jacket. And by this time as well, another aspect that I love is that it would have been probably made by a female seamstress rather than a male tailor. So, you know, throughout the 18th century, male tailors provided this type of garment for women. And then we see this lovely shift in the 1820s and slightly before of of female um, female tailors essentially starting to come forward and make make these more practical garments for women. So it's really nice that we've got this sort of feminine angle here as well. 
I also like the fact that it's not really how we would view. I think when we think of riding habits from the 19th century, we, we typically still first imagine like the late 19th century, black, you know, very uh, two-piece tailored with the apron skirt. And this is, of course, a precursor to that, but it draws much more on those 18th century red and goat menswear influences. And I think because these were worn so often as traveling garments in their own right or as practical walking garments, it shows something with a lot more breadth and a lot more scope than the later 19th century example. And, and that green color is part of that too. I think we always picture them being black, but they came in all range of colors earlier in the century. And it's, um, yeah, I just think it's a really nice example of, of what that might have looked like. Absolutely. And speaking of range and breadth, <laughs> can we talk about the maternity dress, 1880s maternity dress from the Antwerp's Mode Museum, Fashion Museum? This has to be one of my favorite dresses in the book. One, because it is unexpected. I love that you have multiple references and examples of maternity fashion. Because again, this is one of those topics that's kind of not really often talked about when you're talking about the history of fashion necessarily. So it was such a, a treat to see it. So what does this teach us about 19th century maternity wear and both outer and undergarments? I think the main thing it shows us is the fact that there wasn't anything close to what we think of as maternity wear today. I mean, today women are completely spoiled. You can get almost any style of garment, you know, adapted for being pregnant. And at the time, you know, although most women would spend them pretty much the majority of their adult lives pregnant or trying to become pregnant, and although bearing children was regarded as, you know, the main role of a wife, women weren't encouraged to be seen out and about whilst pregnant. So the fact that this dress was made for somebody who was in, you know, sort of middle to late stages of pregnancy is also quite interesting. It's, she's probably about, at least, I'd say, at least six months looking at it and her bump is unmissable. And it shows that she was unwilling to compromise on style. It's obviously a fashionable princess line design from, you know, around 1880. And it's been very practically modified, but it hasn't shift, changed that silhouette. It hasn't um, covered it up. There's no kind of loose jacket over the top. It, it's very much out and proud. And I showed an example of how that would be achieved with the little picture of the gestation stays, which had front fastenings and adjustable hip gauze and openings for breastfeeding. And we don't know that this woman wore them since many people still persisted with regular corsets against medical advice, but you would hope that she would have worn something a bit more flexible underneath the dress. Um, but I, what intrigues me most is you know, the fact that this dress survived, because so often if something was adapted for pregnancy, it would then be changed back, you know, afterwards or, you know, taken apart and, and remade in the next style after she was pregnant again. So the fact that it survived maybe suggests that she very sadly died in childbirth or maybe she was wealthy enough not to have to recycle or maybe she passed it on to a friend who was pregnant at the same time. We don't know. And, and that's one of the nice things is that it raises all these questions and we produce a kind of narrative about who she was and why she wore this particular dress and, and what kind of encouraged her to, yeah, to, to wear something that was so still so closely based on fashionable styles, but accommodating to the situation she was in. I think there's a lot of unanswered questions there, but that's all part of the detective work of fashion, really. Oh, absolutely. And you did such an incredible job. And I just want to go back a little bit to the gestation stays. I'm sure our dress, our dress listeners figured it out that this is a maternity corset you're talking about. Mm, so yeah, I should, yeah, maternity <laughs> corset, yeah. Yeah, um, I think it's always shocking. I mean, our listeners have certainly heard us um, talking about maternity corsets for a long time, but 
it's kind of one of those things where you're just kind of shocked and taken aback, I think, for contemporary viewers of it. It's kind of like, whoa, a woman would have worn corsets. Although I think it's important to say that they were adapted for, you know, it wasn't meant to hold a woman in or to like keep her pregnancy back. It was meant to maintain the outer silhouette of the clothing. Yeah. And then the fact that these were an option that not everyone took up, you know, that some people tried to wear normal ones is just un- unthinkable. Yeah. And they just lo- loosely laced them, right? I mean, yeah. Yeah. Women weren't trying to torture themselves, I promise you. But I think it's just, you know, we need to remember it, it would have been so foreign for a woman not to wear a corset. You know, it was such a normal part of her body and her life and how she saw herself that it would have been probably quite scary to think about going without one. I mean, unthinkable for a lot of people. So yeah, many ways as we would with say a bra today, you know, just, you know, very different time. (laughs) Yeah, Um, but super interesting thing to contemplate that we don't often get to talk about. So another new addition to this revised edition is the circa 1900 wool morning dress that you feature it's uh, one of the dresses featured in chapter 7, 1890 to 1916. Can you tell us about your decision to include this dress and what it can teach us? Yeah, well, this is one that I was I was lucky enough to um, be given. It's It was a museum deaccession uh, from a friend of mine in um, Pennsylvania. And I just think it's a really lovely example of a woman who, you know, is sort of middle class, not, you know, particularly elite, but someone who lost her husband and would have, of course, needed to, to dress in the appropriate way. So it, it's very practical. It's a dress that she could have worn, you know, while doing almost any activity during the day. But it's in that first stage of mourning. So it shows the necessity of wearing all black for at least the first, I can never remember exactly how many months it was, but I think it was the first year for by this point, maybe slightly less. And I've shown an image um, on the left side of the page, which depicts women in other stages. So after that point, you would move on to mauve or brown or, you know, other shades of purple or gray. Yeah, the fact that it's uh, this textured wool and crepe also shows the status because it was, again, very practical and very easy for her to wear. And I've also depicted a little bonnet, which is also one that was in my collection that is very much um, modeled in a slightly earlier style. We don't know whether she, the particular owner of this dress, wore this bonnet, but it certainly corresponds with images of around this time of women in mourning wearing hats placed on the very back of the head. And in the early months, she would have worn a a sort of a long veil over the front as well. But I've also got a little quote there that by 1907, people were saying that it wasn't considered longer, necessary any longer for a woman under 50 to wear a tiny little bonnet that just fits the head with its white ruching and strings tied under the chin. So by this point, that was going slightly out of fashion. And again, it, it kind of makes us think like with the maternity dress I think anything like this where the dress is made for a very specific life purpose you can't help but develop these narratives in your mind and I think these can sometimes detract from the analytical reading but I think they're also for many people part of what makes analyzing dress so tantalizing and exciting is that you do draw up these ideas in your head of who the wearer might have been and that can all add to your own research and your own understanding of it so Anything like this, I think, yeah, that's emotional as well and poignant is something I wanted to try and include a bit more of so people could have that experience. 
And I'm just curious for you personally, because this is something that's in your personal collection, does that help or change your approach to analyzing it? Because you can actually, I don't know how often you go to the museum collections, obviously. Um, I think you started this book before COVID, obviously, but um, I don't know if you often have a chance to go into these collections and look at the interior of the garments and handle these garments. So does the fact that you own this particular garment help you or bring perhaps a different perspective that you might not get with the other dresses? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's obviously, you know, we always say it's so important to go and see dresses and hold them and look at them if you can. I think the fact that it's that it's mine and I have spent so long looking at it and touching it and, you know, enjoying it, I think makes does make a big difference. It means that I'm very familiar with how it was constructed and it's got this beautiful kind of left front opening with these all intact um, hook and eyes in the front, which are look, seem to be original. So, the dress, I think, from I can deduce from that, probably was worn for mourning and maybe not long after that because it's in very, very good condition. There's not a lot of, um, of wear around the hem, which you often see with, with dresses when they've been worn for a long time, of course. So I think it was obviously a dress that meant a lot to this woman. Like she wasn't a wealthy woman, but it's something that she put aside as a kind of memorial to that period and to her husband. So I think, yeah, those are aspects that you won't get if you're just working from photographs. Um, Whatever questions you can ask a museum, they don't always, of course, have time to look at something in detail and get back to you and talk to you about the condition. So this is something I was really glad to be able to do. And I've I've been able to include a few more of my own in other parts of the book. And in future books, I really want to do that as my collection has sort of grown because obviously they're pieces you won't see anywhere else, but they're also ones that I can hopefully add a bit more insight to when I'm discussing them. Yeah, absolutely. And I will say though, technology today has made it really accessible in some ways, like the Reich Museum has so much of their collection online and they, you can zoom, really zoom in a detail, but that doesn't always give you access to the interior of the garments and it's hidden secrets there. So, And as we know, the interior is so important. They'll often, you know, as important as the outside. Yeah, yeah. So much hiding in there. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So as you've mentioned with this book, and as we previously discussed with the, our discussion of the 1814 Cranberry Girl illustration, your book makes clear that fashion was not something exclusive to the wealthy of society. And jumping forward to the 20th century, you study the simple house dress worn by a migrant mother of 11 in a 1939 photograph. What can we learn from this deceptively simple cotton garment? Well, this image really got me because I, we're all familiar with the Dorothea Lang, um, you know, migrant mother picture from the Great Depression. And I really wanted to try and find something that would show that period of history, but show the entire dress. And this image was from um, the Florida Memory Collection and really beautifully shows what this woman's wearing. And I think it demonstrates that as with the Cranberry Girl at their core, you know, elite and working class garments often shared more similarities than we might imagine. And women from all levels of society at this time might own a house dress. But as in the little sketch I include on that page, as you can see in that one, the more fashionable examples would often feature, you know, kind of jaunty collars or little shaped pockets or impractical things that really made it more of a kind of just leisured, comfortable, fashionable option rather than an actual work dress. But the basic shape is something that a lot of women would have experienced. So I think it's clear from looking at this that it 
might once have been a, a more ordinary standard dress, completely, you know, fine quality and, and construction. But of course, the circumstances that the family's in and the what's happened in the Great Depression have meant that it's being worn to rags. So it kind of is the we see the irony of wearing a so-called house dress when she lived in a shack where, you know, few traditional kind of wifely duties could be easily performed. And I really wanted to try and show dresses from a few traumatic sort of periods in history. I've also got later on a dress worn by a Jewish refugee who was in the Warsaw Ghetto in World War II. And I think these emphasise the power of clothing during these periods. I mean, not to, not to say that fashion was necessarily a priority, but I think that clothing holds many clues to somebody's situation um, and background. And in the case of the refugee, the fact that the dress was kept for so many years also illustrates its enduring value as a memorial as well. The fact that, you know, someone can look back at a, a garment and it can bring so many memories and so many associations back to them. And that people would travel through very difficult times and make sure they kept pieces of clothing, uh, I think is really, really poignant. So obviously, you know, this dress and the migrant mother dress would have been, you know, worn to rags or probably cut up and used to make clothing for the children. So we don't know what happened to it. Uh, we don't have that luxury. But again, we can surmise based on other sad stories and we can use it as a kind of base to look at that era in, in a much broader way. Absolutely. So you feature one of my absolute favorite dresses in the history of fashion in this new edition of your book. And that is Anne Lowe's exceptionally beautiful, such an exquisite art of dressmaking. Her 1966-67 silk flower adorned evening dress. It's in the collection of the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture. Who was Anne Lowe and what does this dress have to teach us about Anne's design aesthetic and skill, but also the fashions of the period? Well, I, I chose this dress because I also love it. I'd always been aware of it, but until for some reason I hadn't, I didn't know so much about her and Lowe herself until after the previous book was published. And I, I just found out a lot more about her. And I thought, yeah, I need to, I need to feature this woman because she was such a game changer, I think. And she made her name by catering to well-known women from elite circles. And, you know, it's famously she made um, Jacqueline Kennedy's wedding dress but she was still referred to as society's best kept secret. And she went, by the time she died, she had not made a fortune through her designs. She went bankrupt as well. But she was an immense talent and she was the first um, person of color, certainly the first African-American to become a sort of noted fashion designer, which at the time, especially it was a, a massive achievement and something that was pretty, um, I don't think there were many precursors to that, Not certainly not to the kind of level that she was. And although she hailed from a vastly different background and she was descended from slaves and from people that had um, obviously very traumatic histories, she, this sort of innate understanding of what her clients wanted, these people from very different worlds. And I love the phrase, I can't remember who said it, but someone pointed out that she sort of fought injustice through her talent. And although she remained sort of on the down low and she wasn't out Talking about her work, there's one article um, from Ebony magazine, I think from 1966, that's still one of the main contemporary discussions we have about her. She was sought out, sought after by, by people. She, her name was known kind of on the underground, as it were. And her achievements are remarkable for anyone, let alone, you know, a person of colour who wasn't even able to study alongside her classmates when she was at college. And I think this particular dress, as you say, I mean, it's it's 
absolutely luxurious, luscious, like those flat handmade flowers were her hallmark and they just kind of cascade down like, like they're growing out of the dress. And I think it also shows this amazing awareness of the latest trends. It's beautifully shaped to the body with this low back and the kind of empire line that were popular in the 60s. So she really managed to create something that conforms to what the young wearer of the dress, who I think was, um, yeah, she would have been late teens, would have wanted. But she also maintained that sort of floor length skirt, which the um, parents would have appreciated. So around this time, we start to see debutante dresses with higher hems, um, with, with more kind of choice. But she knew from the kind of background that this girl was from that she had to kind of cater to what the parents wanted as well. So she kept it traditional and yet it created something that would be incredibly exciting for this girl to wear. So another thing we're talking about the interior of dresses and I, I couldn't see the interior of this one, but we do know that the deceptively kind of simple shape conceals these really intricate couture construction methods, um, lace lined seams and a built in slip and bra that maintain that silhouette. So she wasn't only skilled at the exterior decoration, she was incredibly technically skilled at putting together something that would fit absolutely perfectly um, to, to the individual client. And uh, yeah, I think she is such a rare talent and there's been a lot more written about her, I guess, in the, in the last little while, but I think we, there's still more we can uncover about Anne Lowe for sure. Yeah, and so many other Black dressmakers from throughout history that are just waiting for scholars to get into the archive and learn more about these incredible people because they're there. People just need to look for them. And dress listeners, we promise we are doing an Anlo episode <laughs> season five because it's long overdue. All right, we are nearing the end of our conversation together. As promised earlier, we get to talk about one of my other all-time favorite dresses. <laughs> In this book, like I said, I squealed with delight. It was such a pleasure to see this as the last dress featured in the book's final chapter. So previously, you ended your book in 1970. This new chapter takes us from 1980 to 2020, ending with a dress that aptly reflects the dress's trajectory from a distinctively gendered to genderless garment. So please tell us about your wonderful decision to end the book with actor Billy Porter wearing a Christian Siriano tuxedo ball gown, hands down the best and most welcome surprise of the revised edition. Oh, I'm so glad. <laughs> yeah, I was so happy to end it with, I just thought there is no way I cannot end this book about dresses by not featuring this wonderful man wearing a dress, because this is where our conversations are going now, the future of um, the dress in terms of it being a gendered garment. And of course, this was a perfect opportunity. I mean, it, the dress ties into so many increasing discussions about how masculinity is expressed through fashion, what masculinity means. And obviously it links into really important conversations about androgyny and gender fluidity in dress, which we need to be having. And I'm delighted we are having with so much more frequency. But I think it also ties into something I've been thinking about recently, which is the question of whether the perfect dress for a man, whether that be a cis man or a trans man, will ever exist, whether a dress will arrive that men feel comfortable wearing whatever their kind of background, whatever their age, whatever, you know, whatever their profession. And I think we're a way off that. But I think um, what Billy Porter managed to do was get these conversations started, whether they were positive or negative. He got the, the narrative out there in a way that I don't 
think any other celebrity really on the red carpet had managed to do before. And although his dress was elite, although it was created by a designer that not many people could afford, it opened up the floodgates really. And what I love about his gown as well is that it kind of self-consciously references both male and female fashions, and it creates a kind of effective, I guess, a hybrid of sorts. And this is subtly portrayed, I think, through the use of black, which, you know, has suggested somberness and respectability for men for, for you know, at least a couple of hundred years. And more recently, it's synonymous with elegance and fashion for women from sort of the 20th century onwards. So it also draws on a lot of historical references. The, the shape of the skirt kind of reminded me of um, mid-1860s crinolines with their fullness moving towards the back. And he's got underneath the tuxedo sort of bodice um, jacket, he wears this kind of high-necked blouse with frilled cuffs, which are reminiscent of um, 15th and 16th century women's wear uh, and men's wear. I really love the fact that there is so much in there that on first glance you don't see. Obviously, there's the tuxedo reference and the ball gown reference, but there's a lot more going on. And the way he wore it with such confidence uh, as well was something that I think really caught people and made people think, well, maybe this is something that men can aspire to. Maybe not something quite as out there to start with, but it, it's really got the conversation going, as I said. And I think I hope that by ending the book in this way, it leaves that discussion open. Um, and I hope to make it clear this is really only the beginning of a very sort of exciting new chapter in the history of the dress. I think if I, you know, if I come back in 10 years, who knows where we're going to be? Like, you know, we, we might be looking at a very, very different landscape. Absolutely. And I just have to say that I was asked to review your book. I was, it was such an honor. And my review appears on the back of the book. I'm not, I, this was completely new. This is the first time I've ever done anything like this. Um, so it was a huge honor for me. But the, the thing that I say in my review is that this book is such a potent reminder that not only can we all read a dress, but we can all wear one too. And I absolutely think that this is the future of fashion, moving beyond gendered fashion uh, to de-gender fashion. I think the dress still remains one of those gendered garments, but as Billy Porter and others are demonstrating, it certainly is not going to stay that way for long. So thank you so much for that. Oh, thank you. And thanks for your beautiful review as well. I really appreciated that. Lydia, thank you. This has been such a pleasure. I know our listeners are going to rush out to buy your books if they have not already. Thank you for joining us again on Dressed. Thanks, Cassidy, for having me. Lydia concludes her discussion of Billy Porter's Christian Siriano dress by writing that, quote, Siriano's piece is a pertinent final offering in a book exploring the dress, being a poignant musing on the garment's potential to become a genderless, equalizing force in an increasingly non-binary society, end quote. And we are absolutely here for all of it, as our regular listeners know. And if you want to learn a little bit more about degendered fashion, check out our two-part interview with Alok Vedmenon from earlier this year. And dress listeners, go out and get a hand on Lydia's books, the revised edition of How to Read a Dress, a guide to changing fashion from the 16th to the 21st century. And of course, How to Read a Suit, a guide to changing men's fashion from the 17th to the 20th century. While that does it for us today, dress listeners, may you contemplate the power, the history of the dresses in your wardrobe next time you get dressed. 
We do love hearing from you. So if you'd like to email us, you can do so at dressed at iheartmedia.com. You can also DM us on Instagram at dress underscore podcast, where you will find images accompanying each week's episodes. You can also follow us on Facebook at dress podcast without the underscore. And also, if you have a moment and would like to take the time to rate and review us on your podcast listening platform of choice, we do always appreciate your support. And as always, special thanks to Casey Pagram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio who makes this show possible each and every week. More dress coming your way on Thursday. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.